Hey, it is so good to see you here at the Neighborhood Church. Um, John broke his finger. He just stepped out. He broke his finger yesterday, so they called up the JV guitar player, and so I was able to play and sing a little bit. So I'm ready, y'all. I hope you're feeling good. We're inside. We're dry and I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's there in the second half of your Bible in the New Testament. It's one of the earliest letters that we believe was ever written for the Jesus movement. And this is a letter that was written to a church that was started amidst a lot of opposition. They didn't take too kindly to this Jesus and his followers And so we've been looking at this letter, and tonight our fifth message out of this letter that all hinges on this word stay. The very beginning of this letter, we see Paul over and over praying for and encouraging this new church to stay strong. Tonight, we're shifting toward the back half, the back end of the letter, and he's going to say, stay holy And then, in a few weeks, we'll see, hey guys, Jesus is coming, so stay awake. Keep your eyes peeled. Jesus is going to come and renew all things. And then finally, we'll close with the reminder to stay together, because we're better together than we are alone. As hard as it is to be God's people together sometimes, we believe it's better together. So, I hope you're there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 to 8. And if you don't know what verses 1 to 8 are, buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a fun one tonight. Y'all ready? I'm going to read this passage. It's going to be on the screen. I'm reading from the New International Version. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As, in fact, you're now living. So now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So therefore... Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say thanks be to God. God has called us and empowered us to live a holy life. Let me say it this way. Everything that God asks of us to do, he gives us the means to do it. Let me say it another way. Everything our Lord Jesus commanded, he lived and gives us the Holy Spirit to actually do and live this life. Everything We've been asked to do, we've been empowered to do. To what? To live a holy life. Stay holy. Excuse me. Holy. How many of you have heard that word, right? How many of you have heard it outside of church? Probably not many of you. It's a church word. But really, at its most literal meaning, it's a really simple word. And it's a word that means separate or set apart. Okay? Holy is set apart. The way I've always thought about the word holy is this. I go into my parents' kitchen and I grab a plate. I put my nachos on it or whatever, burrito. It's the ones that are all scuffed up, marked up. They're those Ikea or Walmart bargain bins ones that you use until you can't use them anymore. Okay? Here's how I think about holy. 
I would not go to my parents' dining room and open up that cabinet and get the fancy plates. They are not worthy. My burrito, my nachos are not worthy of the holy plates, okay? Some of you got moms that don't want you to touch their fancy plates or towels or whatever. They are holy. They're separate. They're other. But here's the other dimension of this word. Because you've heard it in a church setting or religious setting, it ain't enough that it's just separate. There's also a moral tone to it, right? How many of you have seen those people that are just like, I'm praying for you, and you're like, Psh, they are so holy. I know, y'all. That's because there's this ethical or moral connotation with the word holy. So it's separate, it's moral, ethical, mixed together. You get this idea that a holy life is some life well-lived that is separate and distinct from other lives. Are you with me on a holy life? Now, we see over and over again in this book we call the Bible, in one of the earliest books called Leviticus, there's this command where God says, be holy, just as I am holy. And then you see in one of the last letters that we have in the Bible, in 1 Peter, Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus, he writes these letters and he said, hey, you've heard it said in Leviticus, be holy as I'm holy. He's like, yeah, yeah, do that. We are God's special, separate, distinctive people. So throughout this book of the Bible, God has called his people to a holy life. God has called his people to reflect God's character. Have you ever thought about what it means that we sing, God, you are holy? Well, think about our definition. God, you are separate and other and unlike any other God, thing, person, place, noun, adjective, adverb. You are beyond and other. And that's why we sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Even though God is other, he is still here, present, and he's calling us to reflect the good character of our creator. He's called us and empowered us to live a life that is holy, that is distinct from the world around us. So you saw when Paul says, I'm urging you in the Lord Jesus, I'm pleading with you. Guys, you've lived it, keep going, but I'm urging you to live a sanctified, holy life. What did we just read was the example that Paul gives as a characteristic of what a holy life looks like. One of the biggest distinctions of God's people throughout all centuries and ages is how we are to live in sexual holiness. So tonight we're going to look at three big questions. The first is the what of sexual holiness. What is Paul saying? Then the why. Because Paul, it's hard, dude. So why? And then finally we're going to close briefly with just some reminders for us. Whether you're single, married, celibate, young, old. Some reminders of the how of sexual holiness. That'll be at the very end of our time. So we're going to talk first about what it is Paul is saying. And one of the Bible questions I always want you guys to ask when you're reading this is, when is Paul saying this? Where is Paul saying this? That's going to matter to this young church in Thessalonica. But first, let me get the ball rolling to tell you a little bit about my journey, okay? I want to recognize right now the elephant in the room, okay? Sometimes it's hard for us to talk about sexuality. Why? Because many of us have a complicated history or feelings or practice about sexuality. I talked to a non-Christian recently, and we were talking about, I guess, sexuality because he says, hey, man, you know how you only talk about sex with your partner when it's either going really good or really bad? And I said, I guess. And he goes, yeah, most of the time, though, we just never talk about it. And I said, you know what? You're right. And I realized that in, even in the neighborhood church, if we believe that God is the creator and giver of good and perfect gifts and sexuality is a gift, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight, we just don't talk about it that much. And I know that there are young people. I know that there are people here in this room. But if we don't talk about it with them, everyone else will fill the void. Our culture is one 
that is sex-obsessed and sex-saturated. So if we as God's people can't redeem sexuality for its good and beautiful purpose and intent, then we are in bad shape. So let me get the ball rolling, like I said, with my journey. Perhaps you'll have some feedback if you grew up in a church, some relationship to this story, but I want to tell you that I was exposed to pornography, hardcore pornography, at a super young age. So young that I want to tell you it was probably my earliest memory. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I have a bad memory to begin with, but some of my earliest memories were being with a certain person in a certain place and seeing images I shouldn't have seen. And so this set me on a trajectory as a young man where I was fascinated with sex. And then the more and more as technology caught up with the times in the 90s, I began to look more and more for pornography to the point that I became addicted as a young man to pornography. Meanwhile, as I'm struggling and wrestling with this unwieldy sexuality and what is it and how do I do this and what are the expectations and no one's really talking to me about it, I start to go to a Baptist youth group when I was in junior high and they start talking about it. And so the first voice that is entering my consciousness about sexuality. Yes, my parents had the talk. Yes, I saw the video there, but I had no filter to guard against or work out what I was seeing and seeking with the images I was looking for. So the first voice that is speaking into that is my well-intentioned, good leaders in my youth group. But the only message they were communicating to me was essentially this. Don't, yuck, don't, watch out, stop, it's bad, don't, wait for marriage. And so then what happened is I began to boil down this view that sex is bad. So when I'm seeking this and sorting this out in my young life, the message within me is this is bad and wrong. And I love how country singer Butch Hancock sums it up with this quote. He says, life in Lubbock, Texas taught me two things. One is that God loves you and you're going to burn in hell. The other is that sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth and you should save it for someone you love. (laughs) I've never heard Butch Hancock's music, but I love that quote because it boils down the message that I internalized when I was growing up. And that is this, that sex is bad and that God's love is conditional upon my sexual sin. So if I didn't look at porn, God loves me. If I didn't go too far with this girl or that girl, God loves me. But any other time, he hates me and he's out to get me. And the fruit of this was shame. And it wasn't until we were almost married And we were in premarital counseling and we were talking through our own sexuality. And God was beginning to break down this distortion of my view of sexuality. I began to move from a sin-centric view to a God-centric view of sexuality. That I believed then and now that sex is good and that God's love is unconditional, but that God's way is best for it. And the fruit of this view is flourishing. Recently, Amy was talking to some women who have a very difficult and wounded sexual history. And just the fact that God, our good creator, who created us and gave us the gift of sexuality, was mind-blowing to them. Amy asked them, who created sex? And within the room, more than a third said, the devil. And doesn't that break your heart? Because for them, like me, in times of our lives, we have such a complicated and broken history with sexuality that we cannot reconcile the fact that God would call us to live this way, not because he hates us, but because he cares for us and he wants our flourishing, not our destruction and distortion. And if we can't talk about it here, where else can we go and talk about it?
So the basis I want you to understand, why I share my story, is we all need to move from this sin-centric evil view to know this is God's good gift if we use it according to the instruction manual. So Paul's basis for this whole teaching is God and his way and that we are to reflect his good and beautiful character. So the passage we just read, when he shifts to the back half of the letter, he says, hey guys, remember, I was teaching you about Jesus. You guys, even in the midst of opposition, people trying to beat you up and throw you out, you guys were rocking and rolling. We urged you to keep going. Do this more and more and more. So Paul says, you've taught it, you've lived it, keep on and grow more and more. And he says this in verse 3, as the banner under which all of his sexual teaching will come, he says this in verse 3, it is God's will, God's desire, that you should be sanctified. Oh, there's another church word. Y'all have heard the word saint. We get our word saint from sanctified, and it means that Similarly, that you're made holy, you're growing in holiness. God's people are called and empowered to reflect God's character. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, holy, and getting holier. And the way that's worked out for these Thessalonians is this, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So remember, a holy life, a sanctified life, means distinct, set apart, other. I want you to hear about the Thessalonica landscape. These new Christians, so many centuries ago, stepped out of the pagan religions. Pagan is a way of saying not worshiping the true God, maybe polytheists. They stepped out of the pagan religion in which they would go to the religious temples that doubled as brothels. If you wanted to go worship some deities, you would go and your act of worship for many men would be to enjoy the cultic prostitutes. Do you have any category in which religion and sexuality can coexist in that way? Now, I'm trying to tell you that sexuality and spirituality may in fact be linked because it's a good gift that God gave us. But the Thessalonians are trying to reconcile how it looks with God, but now we can't go with the prostitutes? Then you have philosophers in the Greco-Roman world, documented in a good many places, instructing their men to keep a mistress for the sake of pleasure, concubines or prostitutes, maidens, For the daily care of our persons, (laughs) but wives to bear us legitimate children. So you have your religious practice in the culture around you where you go to church and grab a prostitute. Then you have your philosophizers saying, hey dudes, y'all need to get yourself a mistress, get you some concubines just for the day-to-day, knocking it out. And then you need a woman to give you some legit children so you can go to the fancy dinners and be a respectable male leader in the society. What do you think is the fruit of this kind of culture? You see the New Testament continually, repeatedly saying, don't go back to these temples. Don't go back to this. Hey, husbands, love your wives. Give yourselves up for her. Women, go and try to honor and love and care for your husband. Why? Because the fruit of their world is one that dehumanizes women and dehumanizes men to their basic instincts that say you are no better than your urges, so you may as well go eat, drink, and be merry. Have at it, dudes. You get a free check. This is what Paul and the Thessalonians are up against. And what the Jewish and Christian communities viewed as immoral was in fact celebrated by the broader culture. Not like our culture, right? You know what's interesting is the strip club that's on the way to our house on Plano Road near 635 is a nondescript building. It may not look like a religious temple of the Greco-Roman world, but the parking lot is full. 
and you go far over to West Dallas off of 35, and you see behind all the curtains one of the hot spots of sex trafficking throughout North America, right here in our own backyard. We hold in our pockets phones in which pornography and sexual images are readily available. We live in a culture that may not have prostitutes celebrated and go for it, but that does not mean that they are no less available and accessible. Dehumanizing women, substituting deep intimacy for cheap pleasure. So Paul says, guys, what does a holy life look like with our sexuality in this sex-crazed culture in which the Thessalonians lived, in which we today live? This is the what. What are we called to do? It boils down to this. Paul writes to avoid sexual immorality. That word is porneia. That's where we get our word pornography for. It's a biblical catch-all term for fornication, which is another biblical word for any sexual activity outside of marriage. It's a term for uh, lust. It's a term sometimes used for adultery. He says avoid sexual immorality. Then he says to learn control. Don't be out of control. Does some of y'all's Bibles say acquire a wife? It's a strange phrase in the original language. My Bible has a footnote that says learn to control your body, but then it says some might think it says get a wife. I don't believe he means get a wife because... Some of us can no more go out and get a wife than we can change our hair color just by thinking hard. It takes two to tango. So I think what he's saying is, no, learn to control your vessel. That's the word he uses there, your vessel. And so some people think, ah, he's talking about a wife. She's just a vessel. And I think, no, he's talking about learn to control your body. Don't be out of control, burning with passion or lust like the pagans. This is something that is inherently God-like. God, we believe, has breathed life into us and spirit into us. What separates us from the animals? Is it not that we are image bearers of a good and beautiful creative God? And yes, it takes work and discipline, but we are more than our urges that can dehumanize us. God didn't just call us to live this way. We're going to talk later on again that he's enabled us to live this way by giving us his very spirit. Finally, in that section of the what of sexual holiness, Paul says, don't take advantage or wrong, right? Y'all can just say, don't cheat a brother or sister. There's some other confusion there if you read commentaries because they're like, that kind of seems weird. Is he talking about like don't steal their money? And I'm like, man, in the context of this, he's saying don't take something that ain't yours. Because even in the Greco-Roman world, they said get you a mistress, get you a prostitute, but don't get you another man's wife. Because I think inherently in all cultures, you see this kind of taboo because God has wired us all with his image. And I think that we know and they know at some level the destruction that happens when we step outside of marriage and break apart other families. It's for God's best and his care that he's called us. But this is a crazy radical call then and now, isn't it? And this is what we've got to reconcile, guys. As followers of Jesus, you've got to understand you can't run from this. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But it's hard, yes. It takes discipline, yes. But Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And here's the trick, and I promise you this. If you were to do that, as hard and painful as it is to die to yourself, you will find new life in Jesus that you never thought possible. But it's not without a struggle. It's not without a cross. The next slide, I try to talk through this that... I want to tell you a better thing, but in their culture, in our culture, in every culture before or since, it's the same call to holiness for God's people. And there's something interesting when he says, don't be 
burning with lust like the pagans, he says, who don't know God. Knowing God, being in relationship with God should make some difference. So now we've got an issue of trust. Can we receive this radical, countercultural call and trust the Creator's way? That's why I think Paul says twice in verse 2 and verse 8, like bookends, if you look at the Bibles you're holding in your hands, that's why I think he says in these two places, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, I didn't make the rules. My authority, the guy I'm appealing to, is the one who saved you, rescued you, loves you, and empowers you. Then in verse 8, after all of that that we just covered, he says, but anyone who rejects this does not reject a human being but God. Guys, this is God's design, not Paul's invention. But why, though? Why? This is our second move here. Why this call to holiness? I just alluded to this a moment ago in the case of adultery, but let's think about what Jesus talks about when he talks about lust, and he says, I promise you that if anybody looks at someone with lust in their heart, it's as if they've committed adultery in their hearts. It's serious. And I think, man, how is that? And I think it's because it's a violence against a person. And to go and to, to, to uh, spread this gift of sexuality to all people in all places, what happens is little by little, you're cheapening the intent of intimacy and connection that is a part of what it means to be human. But you go and find it in all these wrong places until you're left empty. That's a violence against yourself. And of course, to go toward another man's wife, to go toward another Woman's husband is something that can destroy us, but it's not without God's forgiveness and enablement to find new mercy and a new step forward. Why this call to holiness? Could it be that God's call is actually rooted in his care? But I want to talk really quickly before we move on about a verse that has troubled me all week. Do y'all know which verse I'm talking about that we just read? It's not on the screen. It's a verse that says this. Verse 6. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. The Lord he's talking about there is the Lord Jesus, who met a woman caught in adultery. He lifted her chin and says, who condemns you? when the people drop the stones from a woman caught in the act of adultery. How do we reconcile? The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. I think there's something to be said in what the text actually says. And Paul uses this word that says the Lord is the avenger of all those who do these kinds of things. Did y'all know that Jesus was, the avenger, was in the next Avengers movie, the age of... Ultron, Wasp, Ant-Man, I don't know. I hadn't seen any of these things. It's the only time he uses such a weird word. The Lord is the avenger. There's something we don't talk a whole lot about in our church either, and that is that all of us, I don't know how, why, when, what it's going to look like, but the New Testament speaks of all of us standing before Jesus. And there is some kind of judgment, even for those who are Christians, the things that we've done, good, bad, ugly. And it's this way in which we stand before Jesus and all of the things that have brought more and more hell on earth are laid out before him. And I think what's going on here, if you stay with me, the Lord is the avenger. The Lord is the one who's going to stand with the wronged and accused. And I see that throughout Scripture. Not just that the Lord will let you experience some of the consequences of your actions, but that the Lord is always trying to lift up those who have been belittled and put down upon. And to the degree that you've done that in your person, using them and breaking this apart and dehumanizing yourself, he's standing on the side of the one who's been put down. But let me tell you this. Here's one mention of the Lord as avenger. Let me give you dozens of others that speak to the one that says, 
there is now no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Hear me right now. Hear me. You, littered with guilt and feeling, he's got me. This is it. Adam is speaking right to me. I can't do it. I can't look at it. I looked at this or I did that. This is a habitual thing. Let me tell you, if you are in Jesus, there's no more condemnation. Let me say it again. If you're in Jesus, there's no more condemnation. Paul goes on in that chapter in Romans 8. He says, I'm convinced neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor rulers nor principalities nor darkness nor danger nor famine nor nakedness nor anything else in all creation. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love that God the Father has in you in Jesus Christ. Nothing. Not porn, not adultery, not fornication, not sex, not this, that, or the other. When we stand before Jesus, whatever the judgment is, it is to mold us and shape us and continue the work he began in us so that all of this filth and dross will be burned away in the relentless and all-consuming love of God. And so all of this stuff will be gone and we'll stand before Jesus just like he is and he is smiling. There's no more condemnation. That's it. But this has to go. Why wait till then? Today is a day to say, Jesus, I'm turning back to you. Could God's call be rooted in God's care? Back to the why. Why this call to holiness? I heard about why not to do these things through a rose. Stay with me. Maybe you grew up in the 90s jammed on this one too, okay? Toby knows. Imagine a speaker, and I did this at a huge megachurch in Dallas, and he hands a rose to the front row. And he says, this rose represents your virginity, your purity, your goodness, your whatever, your flower, right? And now we're going to pass it around. And each one of you, man, take a good look at it, feel it, feel the softness, watch the thorns, do this, feel the leaves. And he passed that thing around the whole room of people until it made its way back up to the speaker. What does it look like then? with all y'all's grubby old hands. Bad, okay? Hold that. Amy and I were talking about this this week. She said, oh, yours was a rose, mine was an apple, all right? So now imagine youth pastor, well-intentioned, good guy, trying to warn of the dangers that Paul just said. Takes a big old red, shiny apple, okay? It's very Edenic, right? Adam and Eve style, right? He says, this is your virginity, your purity, your, well, not flower, it's your apple, He says, now, you start to date somebody, go a little too far, take a chunk out. Things in badly, go to the next person, go a little bit further, and you like it, so you keep going, and he eats this whole thing until what's left? The core. Who wants the core? Amy's story, my story. What's left is a dirty, beat-down rose that has lost its beauty and luster, And Amy's story, what good is an apple that's eaten down to the core? The same message for both is this. Who would want you? When I was 14, I wish I raised my hand in the back and answered, God does. But God cares. He loves you. He meets you where you are and loves you enough to say, let me show you real life in flourishing. So I prefer an image of the campfire. Y'all been camping? You know that a fire is part and parcel to the whole experience. Man, it sucks to go camping without a campfire. Why? Because you get light, heat. What else do you do except sit around and eat and drink and talk and hang out? It gives off fire, it gives off warmth. You can cook your marshmallows to them. Things are black, and that's the best kind. But we also know in the state of Texas, or our brothers and sisters in California, that part of what makes the campfire great is that there's also a boundary. You see where I'm going with this? Because when there's no boundary, you guys aren't as good with the campfire as you thought. That thing's going to roast your pant legs, or it's going to roast the whole state park. The boundary is good. The fire is good. Both are gifts of God. And I want to say that for the follower of Jesus, the boundary is marriage, a covenantal relationship. 
But I want to tell you, back to my journey of my own brokenness and sexuality, I thought marriage was going to fix it. Hello? But I realized that marriage doesn't just, boop, fix all the brokenness in your own heart. What I realized is that a fire still needs work. Hello, men? Women? Married people? All the single people are going, ha, 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 ha. The fire still needs cultivating to burn. And here's one of the things that I had to learn and I feel like I'm still trying to get my head around. This is a human cake. And let's say that this part of your person, your being, is the sexual component. Let's say that this part is the physical component. Let's say that this part is the emotional component. Let's say that this part is the psychological component. Let's say that this part is the spiritual component. Let's say that this part is our social component. This is how I viewed the Adam cake. Divided up with clean boundaries. And what I've learned that whether you're single or married, this is not an accurate reflection of your cake. What we might think is that I've got my social peace here and my sexual peace there and my spiritual peace here. But as soon as you begin to be in relationship, not just married, but with anyone, as soon as you begin to be in a relationship, you realize that when you feel upset, it begins to affect you on a psychological level. And that begins to affect you on a social level because you don't want to be with anybody. And who would want to be with me because I'm a wreck? And then you realize that in marriage that you can't just turn on the sexual piece when they're upset, when they're mad at you. You realize that that bleeds into the sexual component. When you're single, you cannot just erase the sexual component. You are a sexual being. God has made you and there's something about you that God is pushing you and driving you to be connected to others. There's a book called Redeeming Sex. The elders are reading. We have an opportunity with our network in the Ecclesia Network to dialogue with the author this fall over a series of many weeks. And what she has talked about in this book is that we have sexualities there's our genital sexuality, which is the one that all of you are uncomfortable about because that's what I've been talking about for 30 minutes. But then there's also a social sexuality. We are longing for intimacy and connection. And let me tell you, our single brothers and sisters can find it. But until there is that kind of intimacy, there's, there's something that their social sexuality is what gets primary billing. But here's what I want to tell you about our human cake. This is not an accurate picture. This is the accurate picture. You are sexual. You are social. You are embodied, physical. You have a mind that God has given you. You have emotions that make you feel and respond to the world around you. But you need to understand that everything bleeds into and informs the other. We are whole people. So why sexual holiness? Because there is something about our sexuality that seeks to infiltrate every little thing and dominate us where it becomes our identity. It becomes our engine it becomes the bane of our existence if it is not used in the way we want it to be used. I think why holiness and sexuality are so intricately woven is because God has wired us for intimacy and connection and this is the way that we bear witness to it. So what happens when we jump the borders? What happens when the fire spreads? Why such a big deal? I said because sexuality has some way of really dominating and informing the rest, which is why I think Paul says, learn to control your vessel. Understand that we're sexual beings. It's never going to just disappear. But I think the other thing is we hear a lot about lust. Jesus talks about lust 
and we've already said this, but lust dehumanizes. This is my definition of lust because I've had a lot of experience with it and I need help. Lust is when a person becomes something to be used instead of someone to be loved. Do you see why lust, the lust piece of the cake, can not just branch over and overtake the physical? You with me? I don't need to explain that, right? But sexuality can also distort your social component because this person on the screen is no longer a human. This person is not a daughter or son of God. This person is a thing to be used at my own expense. And you can see how, just to continue our example of lust, if the sexual thing goes beyond the borders, you can see how it can become a spiritual issue. When loving your neighbor as yourself is the greatest commandment, you begin to see, well, I don't need to love them, and it becomes a spiritual piece. And the psychological piece we see over and over and over again, our students, our teens, our youths, their brains are being rewired because the images they see are showing them and enculturating them and discipling them in sexuality. I read a New York Times op-ed piece that talks about how there is more violence in sexuality because that's what they see in porn, that's what they think that women want. It's an epidemic, it's destructive, it's dehumanizing, it is rewiring our psychologies and it leaves us empty on the inside. This is why holiness is such a big deal. Now, I told you that the underlying virtue of our being image bearers of God is simply this. Beauty and intimacy and connection are good gifts. Shake your head yes. But I love what C.S. Lewis says. All our vices, our vices always lie in the direction of our virtues. Sit with that a minute. You buying what he's selling? All our vices always lie in the direction of our virtues. You want this good thing, and the enemy and accuser in your own flesh will give you every shortcut in the book, and it becomes a vice. So the two crucial questions I want to let you write down, because we need to move, take a picture we can jump two slides so we can get both questions. What's the virtue underneath the vice of immorality and lust? What is the good thing actually being sought in the wrong place? These aren't my questions. Deb Hirsch, who wrote Redeeming Sex, which I commended to you, has that fantastic second question. What creational good is actually being sought in the wrong place? Married folks that are really envisioning and dreaming about the person over here that just gets me, this emotional affair or whatever we call it, this person here gets me, I'm connected to him, I'm connected to her, that is a good longing, but it belongs within the boundary of the covenant relationship of work in your marriage. What creational good is actually being sought here? I love this quote, and it really helped me. Pope John Paul II, when he's talking about the beauty and the inherent virtues, why pornography is such a dis distortion, he says these words, Pope John Paul II. There is no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, listen to this, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little. Hello? I heard that several years ago, and it was a reminder along my journey that God gave me to say, no, 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 it's never okay, it's not worth it, it's not good, it's dehumanizing to them, but also to you and the one who I gave you to love and cherish and give yourself for. These are serious things and we're called to live a holy life. Why? Because God wants us to be fully human, not to settle for cheap substitutes. So let's round home here at the end and let's close with how. How? 
And I was really struggling with our single and celibate brothers and sisters because this is a hard word. This is a hard teaching. But guess what? It's hard for married brothers and sisters too. So here's a how that I think is for young and old. It's worked in my own life at great cost and time. But we need to begin where Paul ends in this teaching where he says this. To live this holy calling, God has given us his very spirit. You need to understand that all of this is possible. Not just because he's called us, but he's enabled us. He's given us his very self, the Holy Spirit. I think the first thing, and this is us rounding home with the how. Honesty. With yourself, that you are made of dust like Pastor Kathy read. I'm a sexual person. I have these urges. They are good urges from a good creator. Be honest, but also be honest with God. God, help me. I'm struggling. Be honest with others in a way that's appropriate. If you are a married man, don't go to your single woman friend or some other person where that sex talk can get outside of the boundaries into an intimacy that may be best for another person. And I don't think everybody needs to know your accountability things, but someone ought to. And I'll tell you why. Because it's better in the light than in the dark. The fruit of my own journey was shame because shame grows in the dark. Like mold or whatever else, my shame grew in the dark. The reason why I didn't go and was honest with others is because of number two, because I thought there would be no mercy. So you don't just need honesty. You need a brother. You need a sister to show you grace. Hey, mercy with yourself. Mercy from God and mercy from others. And let grace grow in the light in place of shame. I've lived with an imbalance of honesty with a mentor that asked me and lorded over me and did all the avenging and punishing right there, right then. It was ugly. We've talked about this in married relationships. When you get all truth, no grace, that's a call out culture, okay? Call out. Who likes to be called out? Now, I've also lived in the imbalance of the second one, and that's mercy, and I was in a small group with a bunch of other young single men. And I swear we got together just to commiserate about how much porn we looked at or how much we masturbated or how much we did this. And we said, yeah, well, you know, it is what it is, bro. Did you see the game this week? And the imbalance of this was all grace, no truth, no calling to a next step or a life is the hangout culture. The hangout but in John 1, he tells us that Jesus came full of grace and what? Truth. And when we see Jesus interacting with sexually broken, socially broken people, we don't see him call out. We don't see him hang out. The woman caught in adultery I referenced earlier in John 8, he says, where are they who condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I. And then what does he say? Go and what? Sin no more. You have a new lease on life. And the third piece of this puzzle, when you get honesty and mercy, and it looks like Jesus, full of grace and truth, you need a community that will listen, call you up. It's not enough if that person you're talking to is just going to browbeat you and beat you down. Because guess what? You ain't going to want to tell them the next time. You need a real Christian community to call you up and say, no, 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 there's a better way. There's a better call. And he's enabled you, which is the fourth piece, spirituality. I experienced honesty, mercy, and community in a recovery group and worked the 12 steps. And I found a calling up but whether it's AA, NA, or fill in the blank A, you're going to see the very first iteration of these turnings is not just to admit to yourself that you have a problem, but to seek a higher what? Power. 
God has not only called us to this, he's enabled us to this. This passage I just read tonight was highlighted till it was wearing through the pages when I was a young man struggling with this. And I had Galatians 5 and John 15 and Romans 6 where Paul says, I say to you, keep in step with the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh that are leading you into death. I see Romans 6 that say, hey, should I just keep on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, by no means. Don't you know that you've died in Christ and you've been raised to a new life? So don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Why? Because he's given us his Spirit. John 15 says, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So go home, try to white knuckle it. Don't talk to any about it. Just will yourself to do it and you'll fail every time. But would you be honest? Would you see mercy? Would you find a true community? And would you know that the spirit of God is there? And I wanna leave you with this. You can live the Jesus life and you'll do it imperfectly. There's no condemnation for you. You may not love yourself and you may be upset. Let me tell you, the Father loves you more than you could ever ask or imagine. God has one disposition to you and all the world and that is one of unrelenting love. So he's calling you and enabling you, empowering you to keep in step with him and live his way. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your grace, your mercy that meets us, that forms us, that shapes us, that saves us. We ask, Lord, that you would just cast out of people's minds and hearts the words that landed like a slayer that was destructive. And we ask, Lord, that you would call to mind words from you, delicate yet piercing through like a surgeon, calling to life, calling to a new step, calling to grace and life in you. Lord, we ask for inner healing for those that would turn to you and open their hearts, for the brokenness that they've experienced, the abuse that they've experienced. We ask, Lord, that you would meet them in the deepest places of their heart, that you would forgive them, wash them, call them up. Call them up to look to you, to see you, to seek you, and to find in you real love and real connection. And then to look around and find a community that mirrors and models that. Lord, we pray for strength for the journey. Trying to suss out what you meant when you said, when the kingdom comes in fullness, we'll be like the angels, I suppose, that are neither married nor given in marriage. We don't know what any of that means. We just know that we need help. And that there's goodness in being single. It's a high calling to be celibate, to be celibate for the kingdom of God. And we pray for strength and the cultivation of that gift for those of us who who have it. Lord, we pray that there would be honesty and grace tonight in our conversations with you and others. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Um, And so at this point, if you will stand and receive the benediction. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Go in peace.